Let's pray. Jesus, tonight, would you give us clear thinking and sharp minds and the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Teach us your ways. Draw us into your arms, we pray in your name. Amen. Robert Williams Service was known as the poet of the Yukon, and he wrote a poem called The Ballad of Salvation Bill. Now, Bill is a trapper in the far north. It's the middle of the winter. He stumbles across a missionary man, a preacher man, lying, dying in the snow, clutching his Bible. And he hauls the guy back to his cabin, nurses him back to health, and they spend a snowbound winter together. Bill is a chain smoker who rolls his own cigarettes from magazine pages. We'll pick up from there. "'Twas the bleary middle of the hard-boiled Arctic night, and I was lonesome as a loon, so if you can, imagine my emotions of amazement and delight when I bumped into that missionary man. He was lying lost and dying in the moon's unholy leer and frozen from his toes to fingertips. The famished wolf pack ringed him, but he didn't seem to fear as he pressed his ice-bound Bible to his lips." "'Twas the limit of my trap line and the cabin miles away, and every step was like a stab of pain, but I packed him like a baby, and I nursed him night and day till I got him back to health and strength again. So there we were, benighted in the shadow of the pole. And he might have proved a priceless little part if he hadn't got to worrying about my blessed soul and quoting me the Bible by the yard. Now there I was, a husky guy whose God was nicotine, with a coffin nail, a fixture in my mug. I rolled them from the pages of a pulpwood magazine and hacked them with my jackknife from the plug. For oh, to know the bliss and glow that good tobacco means. Just live among the everlasting ice. So judge my horror. When I found my stock of magazines was chewed into a chowder by the mice. A woeful week went by. Not a single pill I had. Me who would smoke my 40 in a day. I sighed, I swore, I strode the floor. I felt I would go mad, and that gospel plugger watched me in dismay. My brow was wet, my teeth were set, my nerves were rasping raw, and yet that preacher couldn't understand. So with despair I wrestled there when suddenly I saw the volume he was holding in his hand. Then something snapped inside my brain, and with an evil start, the wolf man in me woke to rabid rage. I saved your lousy life, says I, so show you have a heart, and tear me out a solitary page. He shrank and shriveled at my words. His face went pewter white. T'was just as if I'd handed him a blow. And then, and then he seemed to swell and grow to heaven's height, and at a voice that rang, he answered, No! I grabbed my loaded rifle and jabbed it to his chest. Come on, you shrimp. Give me that book, says I. Well, sir, he was a parson, but he stacked up with the best. And for grit, I've got to hand it to the guy. If I should let you desecrate this holy word, he said, my soul would be eternally accursed. So go on, Bill. I'm ready. You can pump me full of lead and take it. But you'll have to kill me first. Now, I'm no foul assassin, though I'm full of sinful ways, and I knew right there that fellow had me beat. For I felt a yellow mongrel in the glory of his gaze, and I flung my foolish firearm at his feet. Then wearily, I turned away and dropped onto my bunk. And there I lay and blubbered like a kid. Forgive me, pard, says I at last, for acting like a skunk. But hide that blasted rifle, and he did. 
And he also hid his Bible, which was maybe just as well. For the sight of all that paper gave me pain. And there were crimson moments when I felt I'd go to hell just to have a single cigarette again. And so I lay day after day and brooded dark and deep until one night I thought I'd end it all. Then rough I roused the preacher where he stretched pretending sleep with his face of horror turned toward the wall. See here, my pal, pal, says I, I've stood it long enough. Behold, I've mixed some strychnine in a cup. Enough to kill a dozen men. Believe me, it's no bluff. Now watch me, for I'm going to drink it up. You've seen me bludgeoned by despair through bitter days and nights, and now you'll see me squirming as I die. You're not to blame. You've played the game according to your lights. But how would Christ have played it? So, goodbye. With that, I raised the deadly drink and laid it to my lips, but he was on me with a tiger bound. And as we locked and reeled and rocked with wild and wicked grips, that poison cup went crashing to the ground. Don't do it, Bill, he madly shrieked. Maybe I've acted wrong. See, here's my Bible. Use it as you will. But promise me you'll read a little as you go along. You do? Then take it, brother. Smoke your fill. And so I did. I smoked and smoked from Genesis to Job. And as I smoked, I read each blessed word. While in the shadow of his bunk, I heard him sigh and sob. And then a most peculiar thing occurred. I got to reading more and more and smoking less and less till just about the day his heart was broke. Says I, here, take it back, me lad. I've had enough, I guess. Your paper makes a mighty rotten smoke. So now I'm called Salvation Bill. I teach the living law and ballyhoo the Bible with the best. And if a guy won't listen, why, I sock him in the jaw and preach the gospel sitting on his chest. (laughs) This poem illustrates something that we're slow to learn and quick to forget. And that is that transformed lives are the result of time spent with Jesus. Christ-like characters are something we receive, not something we achieve. So I want to begin tonight with this verse. Hebrews 12, 14, in the VLT translation, which is the Vendon Literal translation. Be pursuing peace with all and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you remember diagramming sentences in English class? Now, I love visually laying things out. And so I thought that was really cool. The teacher taught us one day to diagram sentences, and I was looking forward to more of that. And she never did it again. So I diagrammed this sentence after many years. And it goes something like this. Be pursuing. It's in an ongoing tense. It's a command with the uh, pronoun understood. You all be pursuing. Peace with all and holiness, literally the holiness. Your Bible won't put the the in usually. Pursue peace and holiness. Pursue peace, so it's a compound predicate, right? Pursue peace with all and pursue the holiness. And there's further modification without which no one will see the Lord. So please notice, we're to be pursuing peace with all 
but we're also to be pursuing the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It sounds like that holiness is mandatory, right? Not an optional holiness because without it, no one will see the Lord. The word pursue is interesting. It's found here in Matthew 5.10 where it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The word translated pursue in Hebrews here is translated persecuted. What is it to be persecuted? To be pursued because of what you believe, right? It's used over here uh, in Romans 14.19, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace. That's similar to Hebrews 12.14. 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. 1 Timothy 6.11, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, and love. So this word to pursue is to go after something, right? Now watch this use. Philippians 3.12-14. Not that I have already attained, Paul says, and am already perfected, but I pursue. Your Bible says press on. I pursue if also I might take down upon which I was also taken down under Christ. Now that's a very wooden literal translation, but I want you to catch what it's saying. When you're watching the football game and the quarterback passes the ball and somebody catches it, what happens next? Everybody pursues that guy to take him down. Now I know Paul didn't have football in mind. But he seems to suggest here that he's pursuing becoming completed or perfected. That's what the word means in the Greek, to be completed. He's pursuing being completed. He wants to take it down just like Christ took him down. Now, did Christ take Paul down? Yes, he literally tackled him and knocked him to the ground on the Damascus Road. See, so it's a, it's, it's a good illustration to get tackled. He essentially says, I'm pursuing completion with all the gusto that Jesus tackled me. I want to tackle it. So obviously Paul isn't, well, let's see, you know, a perfection, completion, holiness. You'd take it or leave it. No, he wants to take it down. One thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I pursue towards the goal for the prize over the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this pursuit thing is serious, right? It's not casual. It's present tense ongoing. Be pursuing. It's a process, not an attainment. It's not an end that we achieve and finally arrive at. It's a continuing process of pursuit. It's not casual. It's intent. It's an earnest seeking after life, the fullness of living life God's way. Not just trying to be good by not being bad, not just sin management, not just badness held in check, but entering into the fullness of life as God designed it. Be pursuing peace with all. Sometimes I think our church boards need to remember that part of it, right? Whether at church or at home or at work, we should be in the constant business of pursuing peaceful, positive relationships. Not control, not being in charge, but being at peace. And be pursuing the holiness. Now that's a specific holiness, not just some generic holiness. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Does it sound like that holiness is optional or mandatory? 
mandatory. There is a holiness that if we don't have it, we'll never see the Lord. That's pretty serious, isn't it? Now, the word holiness here is simply the word in the Greek that is elsewhere translated sanctification. Tonight we want to talk about sanctification, holiness. Now, I'm going to use four words interchangeably tonight. Sanctification, holiness, obedience, and transformation. Okay? I'm going to use those like synonyms, so anytime I say one of them, I mean the same thing. Now, most Christians, including most Seventh-day Adventists, believe that justification, getting saved, forgiveness, receiving salvation, is by faith alone. Jesus did the living, the dying, and the rising. He did everything to save me. I can't add to his gift on the cross. I cannot take away from what he did for me. He did all that was necessary for me to go from lost to saved. Amen? Amen. So we say that's by faith alone. I don't do anything except receive what he has done. However, most Christians, including most Seventh-day Adventists, also believe that sanctification, living the Christian life, holiness, obedience, character transformation, is achieved by a combination of my effort and divine power. I work hard at behavioral modification, overcoming sinful habits and actions, and God kicks in the power that makes it happen. It's never going to happen if he doesn't kick in the power. But I do my part, and he does his part. In developing a Christ-like character, I need to put forth determined effort towards self-improvement, trying hard to overcome sin, use resolve, firm up the will, strengthen my backbone, be sincere, and then God will help make it happen. Now let me say all that again. We understand that justification, getting saved, forgiveness, is entirely a free gift that is given to us. We cannot earn it. We cannot merit it. It comes from Jesus. When we acknowledge our error and need and repent, God simply gives us forgiveness. Amen? Amen. Then, once we've received this forgiveness, most of us have tended to believe that we must work diligently on developing a Christ-like character. Now, it's motivated by our gratefulness for being forgiven. But just the same, we must go to work on trying hard to be a better person, be more like Jesus and less like our old self. We focus on our performance and behavior, and with Jesus, and for Jesus' sake, with his help, we can become better. So we work hard on trying to produce that Christ-like character, not to earn our salvation, but more to maintain our salvation. Let me say that one more time, a third time. It is generally believed and taught across the whole spectrum of Christianity that justification, forgiveness, is by faith alone a gift from God. That's the essence of the gospel and the good news of salvation. And our assurance of eternal life is based on our forgiveness, our justification, what Jesus has done for us. But it's also generally believed across the Christian spectrum that sanctification is now a combination of human effort and divine power with the primary focus on behavior, do's and don'ts. I do the best I can with God's help to be a better, better person, and he kicks in the power to make it happen. Now, there's a problem with that. I said it three times because I wanted you to get the point. There's a problem with that. 
If sanctification, holiness, obedience, transformation is mandatory, if it's truly a matter of eternal life without which no one will see the Lord, and if that sanctification involves some human effort, even a tiny amount, then I have inserted human works into salvation and it's no longer by grace alone. Secondly, I have blown away any hope of the assurance of eternal life because if it involves any amount of my own effort, I will never know if I've done quite enough. Let me say that once again. If achieving holiness has anything to do with human behavioral effort and holiness is necessary for salvation, then I will never know if I've done enough and if I'm saved. Therefore, we have two different camps within Christianity. We have a really big camp and we have a smaller camp. The big camp focuses on assurance. Evangelical Christianity focuses on having the assurance of eternal life. And even though many will not explicate it, the theologians who do explicate it will make it clear that justification is what our salvation assurance is based on and sanctification, which involves human effort, is outside the gospel, so we don't get human works into the gospel. It's what I call important but optional. And we have this phrase. I hear it all the time. If you bring up certain things the Bible says we need to do, well, that's not a matter of salvation. Have you heard that phrase? And it's a good way to kind of say, well, that's important, but it's not really that important. It's not a matter of salvation. And I've heard that, I've heard that from people outside of Adventism, and I've heard it all too often from people inside of Adventism. And this is the understanding that sanctification involves human effort. Therefore, we have to put it outside the core of the gospel so we don't have human effort involved in salvation. My assurance is based on my justification. I simply do my best at sanctification with God's help, but my eternal life does not have anything to do with my sanctification. It's not a matter of salvation. Therefore, I can have assurance. Some even further teach that this sanctification, although it's not necessary for salvation, will have to do with my reward. Both here, experiencing Jesus' life, and there, some kind of a greater reward in heaven. But it can't be a matter of salvation, or I've got human works in salvation. Do you understand that? I've said it over and over. I want you to get it. Now, those of us who are on the obedience side of the equation, and that's Adventists, we're one of the major groups over there, we're not willing to let sanctification be important but optional. We believe without holiness, no one's going to see the Lord. Sanctification is necessary. So what do we do? Because we believe, for the most part, that sanctification involves a combination of human effort and divine power, we just give up on the assurance of eternal life and keep working on it and hoping, God willing, we'll be ready someday. Get in that one good day before we die. Now, if sanctification is optional, obedience is optional. That doesn't work for Seventh-day Adventists. But if sanctification is necessary and it involves human effort, we'll never know if we're saved. And so you kind of have two sides. Are we going to have assurance or are we going to have obedience? Are we going to have security in Christ or are we going to have sanctification? And you see the problem. I mentioned Dan Matthews a few sermons back, visiting retired older Seventh-day Adventists, and the majority 
when he asked them what they'd like prayer for, it was that I might somehow know I'm going to come up on the right side of the resurrection. Our senior saints, many of which have given their whole lives to the Lord, still don't know they have assurance. Why? They've been trying hard with God's help to produce sanctification, and they still know the rot is still inside, right? And then I told you the story of my grandpa, a lifelong Adventist Christian. At 86, he's dying of prostate cancer, and he pulls me in, and he says, I'm not like Enoch yet. I haven't got that character of Enoch yet. I'm scared. I'm not ready. So I think we have a real problem. And that real problem seems to come down, are we going to come down on assurance with the evangelicals, or are we going to come down on obedience with the Adventists and a few others? My Bible says, God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. These things I have written to you who believe or trust in the name of the Son of God that you may what? Know Know that you have eternal life. Should I be able to have assurance? Yes. Yes. We talked about that last Sabbath afternoon. My Bible also says, pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So is it assurance or is it sanctification? And the answer has to be yes. Right? How can we pull this together? Tonight I want to share with you something that took me 30 years to figure out. And I believe you can get it in 30 minutes. You're smarter than I am. You'll catch on quicker than I do. You see, I grew up and went to college in an era in this church where this became a divisive factor that took out dozens of my friends and fellow ministers out of the ministry and hundreds, even thousands of our members. Was the subject of his sanctification part of the gospel or not? Is it important but optional or is it mandatory? And the bottom line is what was understood then was sanctification by both, both sides of the argument understood sanctification as a combination of divine power and human effort. One was willing to put it outside to have assurance. The other, the the hard line of the church, the the center of the church, the core, they hung on to obedience. And I went through that and saw my friends taking sides and leaving some of them. And I remember going through that and deciding I didn't believe what either side was saying, but I was called to be a Seventh-day Adventist minister. I was going to hang until it came clear. Now about that time, 1974, before this thing erupted in the late 70s, I showed up at Pacific Union College as a freshman in the theology program. I was clear on my call to ministry from age 16, so I knew where I was headed. Morris Vendon had just become the pastor at Pacific Union College. I think that was a God thing. And that fall of 1974, my freshman year, he started a prayer meeting series entitled sanctification is by faith alone there would be several hundred people at prayer meeting on wednesday night at pacific union college church it had two aisles a center section of benches and two outer sections two aisles there'd be a microphone at the front of each aisle and morris vanden each time would bite off a little piece of the subject he'd maybe present for 15 or 20 minutes such things that we've been talking about I work on relationship and trust, not behavior, and God promises the transformation. 
I seek Jesus through daily time, devotional time, fix my eyes on the uplifted Savior, and Jesus promises the heart transformation that will bring obedience from the inside out. Jesus says the root problem of sin is the heart, and the only one that can really change the heart is Him. And the only obedience that matters is what actually comes from the heart. I abide, He brings the fruit. So Maury would, would, would uh, bite off a little piece of that and present it, and then every time when he was done, he'd open up the microphones and there'd be a line of 20 or so people in each aisle and just about everyone came to the microphone and said, yeah, but. Sounds good, Elder Vendon, but. Don't we have to, but. Shouldn't we be? And Maury hung in there. That sanctification, holiness, obedience, transformation is not a combination of divine power and human effort. It is as by faith alone as is justification. I work on relationship. He transforms my heart. When I sit at the feet of Jesus, he makes an interchange that causes new stuff to come out. When I abide... He makes fruit come and prunes off the dead stuff. And being confident of this very thing, he who began a good work in you will complete it. It doesn't say he will help you complete it. It says he who starts it does it. So do I have a part to play? Yes. Sit daily at the feet of Jesus. That's what we've been talking about. And so Maury was presenting that sanctification is as by faith alone in terms of behavioral focus as is justification. My behavior doesn't get me justified and my behavior doesn't get me sanctified. I come to Jesus and get justified saved. I stay with Jesus and focus on knowing Jesus and he will sanctify me the same way he justified me by his power alone, by faith alone. Now, it better be all him or I can't have both assurance and obedience. Does that make sense? So now let's try to look at this biblically, theologically. If I do not have the assurance of eternal life, then any pursuit of holiness has to be the pursuit of salvation and therefore is righteousness by works. Do you understand that? But if I have the assurance of eternal life, I can pursue sanctification. I can go after it to take it down like Paul was going after it to take it down. And it can't be works to try to be saved because I already know I am saved. It simply becomes a passion that I want God's life fully in me. I want to live that life. And I want to live it for two reasons. Number one, I want to live it so that I can experience life. You know, there's an old song from years ago, 1960s. They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Anybody remember that? Okay. We live in the parking lot. Paradise has been paved over ever since the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But through sanctification, we can begin to live paradise in the parking lot. And I want to live paradise life now. Because, not because I want to be good enough to be saved. I know I'm saved in Jesus Christ. But I want to live paradise now because it's life. Isn't that what everybody's looking for is life? 
whether you're looking for it in drugs or sensuality or entertainment or Jesus, we're all simply looking for life. Secondly, I want to pursue sanctification holiness because God desires us to be living examples on planet earth that the devil is telling a bold-faced lie when he says there's no life to be had other than what he offers and what does he offer a few thrills on the way to death right but if we can begin to live paradise in the parking lot the rest of the people stuck in this parking lot actually have a chance to see paradise is to be had And if there's something real going on in my life and I'm living life, that is undeniable. No matter how much Satan tries to tell them it doesn't exist, it's in front of their face. See, so I believe sanctification is for two reasons. To live life and so others can see that life is to be had. That was the purpose God called Israel in the first place. He wanted to plant one nation right in the middle of the crossroads where everybody would see it that was living life God's way so that people could see there was another way to live. And he said, if you'll live life my way, people will beat a path to your door. Some will come to take it by force, and they'll beat themselves to death against my wall of protection. Others will come and come up to the house of the Lord and receive it. And God wants us to be just like Israel. He wants us to be paradise in the parking lot. So we can experience life. You want your children to experience life, don't you? And he wants us to exhibit life so the rest of his kids can see it's there. All right. As I mentioned, this subject created a major crisis in our church two different times. Back in the 1880s and 90s and again in the 1970s and 80s. We lost thousands of members and hundreds of ministers all over this topic as whether sanctification fits into the gospel. Do I go for assurance or do I uphold obedience? And it's a false dichotomy. And something in me sensed that, although I didn't understand it when I came out of college. And I chose to just try to walk the middle between unanswered questions until finally, it was a few years later, and it was actually some more preaching from Morris Venden that finally gave me the answers I needed to move forward with a very positive understanding. But I tell you, it wasn't until about 30 years later that it finally really settled. Transformation is by faith alone. Holiness is by faith alone. Obedience is by faith alone. Sanctification is by faith alone. Let that sink in. Now let's work on it. Is sanctification, transformation, holiness, obedience a combination of divine power and human effort? I do my best and God makes up the difference. Or is it by faith alone, something God does alone by his power when I simply sit daily at the feet of Jesus and focus on relationship? And the answer lies partly in what we talked about last Sabbath afternoon, our definition of sin. I maintain that if we define sin primarily as bad behavior, then we have to define sanctification as primarily overcoming bad behavior. But if we go back to the tree of knowledge of good and evil and define sin as primarily breaking up with God that led to bad behavior, then I can define sanctification as working on the relationship with God that will result in restored behavior. Is that clear? 
If sin is primarily a broken relationship with Jesus, resulting in bad behavior, then salvation is about restoring that relationship, which will bring about restored behavior, which is holiness, sanctification, transformation. We need to apply that specifically tonight in our discussion of the pursuit of holiness. Seeking a Christ-like character, overcoming sin, obedience, of dealing with our failures and seeking to find victory over our bad behavior. Is that important? Yes. But the question is, how do we go about it? It's not whether overcoming our bad behavior is important or not. It is. God is not going to let us into heaven with bad behavior. But how does the overcoming happen? Let's look at the root problem. Here we go. Well, first of all, let's remember our mantra. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know and who you know will transform what you do. That's sanctification. Okay. The root problem, we are all like an unclean thing. Our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Even the good things we do are rotten. We all fade as a leaf in our iniquity like the wind have carried us away or taken us away. We're a mess. Amen? All right. We need to accept that. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So here, what does that say? You can accomplish just about as much at overcoming your evil behavior as an Ethiopian, a black man, can accomplish becoming white. Now, my associate pastor at Glendale is Eddie Turner. He is six foot eight, 350 pounds, and black as coal, and he's my brother. We are best of buds. I've been privileged to be able to bring him up into the pastorate, and I trust the church to him when I'm gone. But you know what? I could self-identify as black all I want to, and I'll still be a white Norwegian. (laughs) Right? And he could self-identify as white all he wants to, and he'll be an African American. Nothing we can do about it. And that's the point of this verse. We can't do a thing about our bad behavior. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. About the time we think we fix something, something else rotten bubbles up. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Now that doesn't mean God can't, but we can't. Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? The root problem is a heart problem, and that is beyond our ability to remedy by any amount of works and backbone and striving. Jesus identifies sin as a heart issue that results in misbehavior. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the pure in heart, not blessed are the pure in behavior. He defines adultery and murder as something that has to be cured at the heart level. Just because you didn't kill him, if you hate him, you're guilty in God's eyes, right? In fact, It comes down to love your enemies. Now, do you have enemies? Christians pretty much like to say, no, I'm a Christian. I don't have enemies. Do you know why we do that? Because then we don't have to love them. If we claim we don't have enemies, we can ignore them. Loving your enemy doesn't mean ignore your enemy. It means engage your enemy positively towards finding peace. Striving for friendship and peace. So we like to claim we don't have enemies, and that's a good Christian thing. I don't have enemies. But we 
do that so we don't have to engage them. We need to recognize who our enemies are and ask God to give us love for them and engage them positively. God calls for so much more than good behavior. Good behavior isn't good enough. It's got to be transformed heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The things that proceed from the mouth come out of the heart. Our problem is a heart problem, and the one thing we can't do is change our hearts. We are absolutely powerless to change our hearts. If you need heart surgery, the one thing you can't do is do heart surgery on yourself. You have to get a good heart surgeon, and you have to submit to let the heart surgeon do it all. You just lay there in his presence. If I have a foul language problem, but I never speak it out loud, and somebody cuts me off in traffic, and the words go through my mind, good news, nobody on earth heard me, just the rest of the universe heard me. I'm cleaning up the outside of the cup, and that does not count with God. Jesus called the behaviors of his day hypocrites, and he says our righteousness must surpass theirs. Our righteousness must surpass the behaviorist. Good behavior isn't enough. It has to be a changed heart. And we can't do that. Woe to you Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites. You cleanse the outside of the cup and dish inside. It's full of extortion and self-indulgence. First cleanse the inside and the outside will take care of itself. Whitewashed tombs. You appear beautiful on the outside, but inside is a bunch of deadness. And so outwardly you appear righteous, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We need a heart transplant, and the one thing we can't do is do heart surgery on ourselves. Misbehavior or sin is a heart problem that manifests itself in harmful deeds. The only solution is a heart transformation that we can't do by any attempts at behavior. All we can do is place ourselves on the operating table in Jesus' presence and say, have at it. The original sin was breaking up with God that resulted in what we call sinning, bad behavior. Therefore, the original solution is restored relationship, which will result in restored behavior. Therefore, just as justification forgiveness is by faith alone, in the same way sanctification and holiness is by faith alone. By the way, this is built in beautifully to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 17 says, you shall not what? What does it mean to covet? Want it. The Tenth Commandment doesn't say don't do it. The Tenth Commandment says don't even want it. How are you doing at that? The point is, the the first nine, you can look great at the first nine. You got your Sabbath keeping down, you're not committing adultery, you're not stealing and lying and killing people. And you get to number 10, and it kills you. You can't even want it. Don't even think about it. Whoops, the minute I thought about it, I'm dead. And you know what? That's exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans 7. I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness. Which one is that? Number 10. Unless the law had said, you shall not covet. He said, you know, I was doing great on the law till somebody explained number 10. 
And I discovered my behaviorism as a Pharisee was completely worthless. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment. Which commandment? It's singular. Number 10. Producing me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment, which one? Number 10 came, sin revived and I died. He said that number 10 has just killed me. And the commandment, number 10, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion in the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Paul says that number 10 is the one that finally took me down as a Pharisee. And I think number 10 takes us down from any behavioral approach to sanctification. Because you can't fix your desires. You can only lay them on the altar of Jesus Christ and ask him to please do something about them. Lord, I want to kill that person. Lord, I want to commit adultery there. I want to do this. I want to do that. Now, I'm, I, that's me. Admit it. Bring it up in prayer. You can bring anything up in prayer. We talked about that. Now, Jesus, I'm sitting at your feet. By beholding, I believe I'll be changed. I'm going to watch you. I'm going to put my eyes on you and ask you to do the transformation that actually changes my heart. I once told a, a man that I spent quite a bit of time with about 25 years ago. We worked together for a while. He wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist, but he was a Christian. And I once told him, you know, I said, my desire would be that if I see a woman who has dressed in a way to catch my eye for the wrong reasons, that instead of feeling lustful, I'd like a piece of that, I would feel sorrow knowing she is setting herself up to be hurt. And you know what his answer was? Why would you want to do that? <laughs> okay. You cannot be good by not being bad because sin is a heart issue. You cannot change your heart, but God promises he can. The only true obedience is the obedience that comes from the heart. Some who come to God by repentance and confession and even believe that their sins are forgiven, they're justified, still fail at claiming, as they should, the promises of God. They do not see that Jesus is an ever-present Savior, and they are not ready to commit the keeping of their souls to him, relying upon him to perfect, complete the work of grace given in their hearts. While they think they are committing themselves to God, there's a great deal of self-dependence. There are conscientious souls that trust partly to God and partly to themselves. Sanctification is a combination of human works and divine power. They do not look to God to be kept by his power, faith alone, but depend upon watchfulness against temptation, the performance of certain duties for acceptance with him, there are no victories in this kind of faith. Such persons toil to what? No purpose. There are those who profess to serve God while they rely on their own efforts to obey this law, even a little bit of their own efforts, to form a right character, to secure salvation. Their hearts are not moved by any deep sense of the love of Christ, but they seek to perform the duties of the Christian life as that which God requires of them in order to gain heaven. Such religion is worth how much? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. In spite of what the Bible says, we try to at least have a little bit to do. Don't I need to do something? 
And it's those of us who have tried for years and years and years to perform, to have a transformed character by our own efforts and God's support that often get the most upset when we get told all we've been doing all these years is worth absolutely nothing in terms of eternity. Behaviors have a really hard time with this message. We believe that if we just try a little harder, we make our resolutions earlier, we stiffen our backbone, we grit our teeth, we start a little sooner, we knuckle it, white knuckle it. We're going to make it this time. But our resolutions are like ropes of sand. Think about Israel. They have that same problem. What did they say when God gave them the law on Mount Sinai? All the people answered and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, was that the right answer? I had a divided audience there. I'm going to go with the yes. Because the other answer isn't right. All that the Lord has said, we won't do. The problem isn't with the answer. The problem is how you get to the successful completion of the answer. So Moses took some notes, and then he read it to him again. He read the book of the covenant in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has said we will do, and be obedient. Wow. We're going to do it, Lord. You're doing the right thing. And I'd like to suggest most of us come to Jesus that way. Jesus, you've given me salvation. Thank you for salvation. What do you want me to do? I'll do it. And it may take us decades to figure out what we're supposed to do and what he does. Decades of failure. I believe they gave the right answer. They just didn't know how to get there. And God is patient. We all start there. We all struggle with the same thing. And God is trying to let us know that our resolutions are like ropes of sand. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. Now, Marilyn and I have a Jeep. And we love to go Jeeping. This is in Colorado at 13,114 feet with our Jeep. That's way up in the air. It's about the highest I know that we can get our Jeep. Actually, there's a little nub that gets us up to 13.2. Just out of sight. Now, on the front of that Jeep, we have a winch. Why do you put a winch on your Jeep? So that you hope you'll never have to use it. But if you get in trouble, you can pull yourself out of a lot of things. Now, when I bought the winch for that Jeep, I had to decide, did I want synthetic rope or steel wire? And both have their pluses and minuses. But being in Arizona where things don't rust, I decided on the steel wire. But I'll tell you, the one thing I didn't want was a rope of sand. Right? That would get me absolutely nowhere. I need a rope that can perform. And my resolutions will never be the rope that performs. All I can do is turn my focus to Jesus so that he can transform. You got that? I finally have to give up on my attempts to perform so that he can transform as I sit at his feet. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, you just need to be more sincere. You need to be more sincere. You're not sincere enough. Um, my cousin Lee was finishing uh, prayer meeting one Wednesday night, and this man walked in the back, and he said, would you pray for me? Lee said, well, tell me what the issue is. They went into a side room, 
And the man is now weeping. And he says, I'm a mess. I, I can't seem to be faithful to my wife. I've got a beautiful wife and two children. I've had multiple affairs on her. And she still hasn't divorced me. I'm living with another woman right now. And I decided to try to go to church last Sabbath. And I went to my home church. And the greeters met me at the front steps and said, You're not welcome here. When you show up, it just puts pain in the life of your wife and children. When you're more sincere, you can come back. Now, he wasn't upset at them. He thought they were right. So we showed up at a different church, my cousin's, and said, Would you pray for me that I will be more sincere? You know, pray for me that my attempts will have the sincerity to finally be successful. And Lee said, I don't think your problem is sincerity, but let me ask you a couple of questions. If someone asked you to define what it means to be a Christian, what would you say? And he came out with a typical trying hard to be good and trying hard to stay out of trouble. Lee then asked him, what do you have to do to go to heaven? Same answer, try hard to be good, stay out of trouble. I need to quit doing these sins that I'm doing. Lee said, I'll pray for you, but I don't think your problem is sincerity. I think your problem is you don't know what a Christian is. He said, what do you mean? And so Lee began to go over this stuff with him. The Christianity is not about what you do. It's about who you know, and that will transform what you do. He talked about eternal life is knowing Jesus. He talked about that people who claim to be followers of Jesus and try to do lots of things and say we prophesied in your name and we, we cast out demons in your name. And Jesus said what? I don't know you. We're not acquainted. He talked about getting to heaven involved knowing the right people. Not your behavior, but knowing the right people. man said, I've never heard anything like that before. You mean God wants to be friends? Yes, that's what he made us for. Union and communion and friendship. You need to have a friendship with Jesus. And Lee explained the three legs of the stool, Bible and prayer and share, for the purpose of knowing Jesus and bubbling over. The man had stopped crying finally, and he said, well, I think I could do that. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home and kick the girl out and start spending time with Jesus. And Lee said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't tell you to kick the girl out. I said to go home and seek Jesus. Don't fall into the trap of trying to solve the problem so you can come to Jesus. The man said, what do you mean? We're not sharing an apartment to save rent. We sleep in the same bed. You mean I'm just supposed to? Lee said, no, what you're doing is wrong. But you're never going to get anywhere by trying to solve the problem and come to Jesus. In fact, Jesus wants to save that young lady as much as he wants to save you. Why don't you go home and tell her you've discovered you can be friends with Jesus and ask her if she wants to spend time with you in the Gospel of John and get to know Jesus? He said, are you an Adventist minister? He said, okay, I'll do it. He went home that night. He told the girl he was going to start spending time with Jesus. Would she like to join him? And she said, no way, Jose. I'm out of here, packed up and left that same night. And he started following through. And the click of conversion came with looking at Jesus. And he began to bubble over from knowing Jesus. And one day he was bubbling over to his wife, who he was still not back with, And she saw that something different had begun to happen in his life. And then she realized something. She didn't have a friendship with Jesus. She was the lost coin inside the church trying to be good. And she began trying to be friends with Jesus. And Lee said a few months later, he got to renew their wedding vows. Now here's the good part of this story. 20 years later, 
I love a story with a good after story, right? 20 years later, Lee went back to that town for a dedication of some sort, and this man and his wife met him in the side room, and Lee said he got a hug. He thought he was going to lose his breath. And the man said, you changed our lives with that message. We have been seeking to know Jesus for the last 20 years, and during those 20 years, our marriage has come back together. We have found life together, and we have had the privilege of introducing more than 300 people in the last 20 years to a friendship with Jesus. I like that. His problem wasn't that he was insincere. That's just another work strip. His problem was he needed to give up on trying to change his behavior and get next to Jesus and let Jesus transform his heart. We have a common confusion of so many in our subculture. It's the belief that staying out of trouble equals righteousness. It's the belief that badness held in check equals goodness. It's the belief that sin management equals salvation. Wrong. Badness held in check is just external goodness. The real problem is our heart, and it's unchanged. Badness held in check doesn't fix the heart problem. Man looks on the outward, but God looks at the heart. Trying to be good by not being bad is not being good. We're just fooling ourselves. You realize this. If you could totally quit sinning tonight, you go from negative to not sinning at all. What does God think of you? You are now zero. You're lukewarm. You're room temperature. He's not interested in you just being a non-sinner. He's interested in you being peddled to the metal righteous. Does that make sense? Not sinning isn't good enough. Behavioral perfection isn't good enough. Most people who hear this message say, you're saying just read your Bible and keep on sinning. No, we're not. We're saying trying not to sin will never get you far enough. Because it's got to go down to the heart and it's got to become righteousness from within. And that's a lot more than not being bad. Not being bad is like you shovel all the snow out of a room and all you can bring it up to is room temperature. And what does God think of room temperature? Nauseating, Laodicea. What's the best way to get the snow out? Build a fire. And you'll not be room temperature, you'll be hot. You got that? Behavioral perfection is not enough. God wants to go for the heart, and that's all that really matters. A man told his pastor, I haven't smoked for 20 years. I quit when they told me I couldn't smoke and be a member and be baptized, so I quit, but I haven't wanted to smoke for about 20 minutes. That's not real victory. God wants to change the heart. Morality is badness held in check, but that is not victory. Let me tell you something. There's value to morality. You'll save your marriage. You'll keep yourself out of jail. But it has nothing to do with heaven. God's got to change the heart or he sees the hatred, the murder. He sees the lust, the adultery. Strong backbone is not synonymous with deeper spirituality. People who can tough it out, grit their teeth, clench their fists, stay out of trouble are not more spiritual than the rest of us. Those are the Pharisees, and they kept the Sabbath and killed Jesus. If religion were a thing the backbone could buy, then the strong would live and the weak would die. And that's why we have two and a half million ex or non-participating Adventists in North America. It's because I think they finally gave up on trying to keep themselves in check. It wasn't working. For too long, we've introduced people to the law instead of the Lord.
We've introduced people to the rules instead of the ruler. Without knowing the ruler, all your rule keeping is just external. And God looks at the heart and says, we haven't made any progress yet. What does God say he'll do? I will give you what? A new heart. It doesn't say new behavior. It says a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll take out the heart of stone out of your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and I will help you walk in my statues. Is that what it says? I will cause you. Sanctification is by faith alone. He makes it happen when I sit at his feet. And you will keep my judgments. It'll happen. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. That sounds like God's doing it all, doesn't it? Sanctification is by faith alone. All true obedience comes from the heart. That means any other kind of obedience is what kind of obedience? False obedience. It was heart work with Christ. If we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. Could it be any more clear? The will refined and sanctified will find its highest delight in doing his service. When we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. It will be that, not striving to be that. Through appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful. I've memorized that and I pray it every single morning. Lord, I'm so far from this, but this is what I want. I want the real thing. Is it hard to do something you delight in? No, it's hard not to. Is it hard to do something you find hateful? Yes, it's hard to do it. Hard obedience is what God is looking for. Now I want to give you a gross illustration, so just fasten your seatbelt. This will be gross. Let's say I went down here to, you know, the 7-Eleven or whatever, and I got one of those big, obscene-sized 64-ounce cups. And I hand it over here to the pastor. And I say, Pastor Rod, I want you to spit in this cup. Now, don't just spit in it. I want you to dig deep and bring up some substance, okay? And spit in this cup. And then I want you to pass it to your wife and you spit in it and I want you to pass it all the way around and everybody spit in this cup. And when it gets back to me, I've got 64 ounces brimming with spit. I told you it was gross. Now suppose you had spent a week in the Phoenix desert at 110 without water and you came in the back door. Would you be tempted to even take a sip? You'd rather die. Isn't that right? You're not going to have to say, get thee behind me, Satan. I will not. It would be gross. And this says, when we, through an appreciation of the character of Christ and communion with God, sin will become what? Gross. Hateful. The real obedience is when we're but carrying out our own impulses because he's conformed our hearts to his image. Does that make sense? I don't see how it could be any clearer. 
There is true obedience and there is false obedience. And false obedience is when we work on our behavior. True obedience is when we sit at the feet of Jesus, he changes our heart and our behavior falls into line. Two pair of verses that help make this clear. John 15, 5, without me you can do how much? And where does that passage come from? I'm the vine, my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean or pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. Here's the command, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do how much? Now there's the entire message of sanctification is by faith alone. What do I do? The only thing I'm told to do is abide. And will abiders bear fruit? Positive righteousness. Yes. Will abiders get pruned? Yes. Sins cut off. What do I do? I abide. Sanctification is by faith alone. Do you understand that? It's all right there. Okay. So the first verse of this pair is without me you can do nothing which we'll do as y minus x equals zero. Y is you, and x fits Christ because in the Greek it's Christos, okay? So, y minus x equals zero. U without Christ is how much? Appealed, zero. Next verse. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. U plus Christ equals infinity. So if U minus Christ equals zero and U plus Christ equals infinity, what's the one thing you need to do? Get with Christ and stay with Him. And you've got everything. Justification, sanctification, glorification. It's all there. It's all by faith alone. You get with Christ. The second pair of verses, 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. Is there a fight to fight? This is not do-nothing religion. We have to do something. But we have to do the right thing. As Maury Venden used to say, we've got to fight the battle where the battle is, not where the battle isn't. And we think the battle is in overcoming bad behavior, and that's where the battle isn't. If you fight the battle where the battle isn't, you're going to lose the war. So where is the battle? They said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? What does God want us to work on? Jesus answered and said to them, this is what God wants you to work on, that you trust in him whom he has sent. The good fight is the fight of trust. The bad fight is the fight of behavior. Does that make sense? For years, people have accused those of us who are preaching this of being soft on sin. Soft on obedience, preaching a do-nothing religion. Just love Jesus and keep on sinning. The problem is those who claim that prove that they've never tried the relational approach or they discover that the battle to keep a relationship with Jesus going is far harder than the battle against sin because Satan will oppose you with everything he has. Satan loves it when you work on your sins and he will give you just enough success for you to think you're making progress. But anytime he wants, he can pull the legs out from under you and you're down. The three-legged stool, that's what we work. Bible, prayer, share. I got a little illustration here that I want to use. Aiden, I'm going to call you down the front here. You willing to come down front? 
I got this broom here. Do you think you can balance this broom on your finger? See? I can do it pretty good there. Isn't that great? Okay, come up. All right, so put that broom on your finger and see if you can balance that. Look at that. Aiden is good. Perfect. Okay, now, grab it. Put it back on your finger. I want you to balance it on your finger, but I want you to look here at your finger. Try it again. Practice, practice, come on. He's doing better than most. The reality is, try as you may, if you keep your eyes down here, you can't balance that broom. His peripheral is, is looking up here. That's the only reason he was doing that good. If you look down here, you can't balance. Thank you, Aiden. You can't balance this broom, but if you keep your eyes looking up, it's not hard to balance it at all. Just a little illustration to say, our job is not to look at ourselves. Our job is to look up at Jesus. Fighting the battle where the battle isn't is like a story I've heard from the Second World War. There are many like it. An Allied airman was shot down and killed, and they pulled his body out of the surf. The Allies did. And they took his flight jacket and they sewed secret plans for an invasion into his flight jacket seams and they put him back out in the ocean not very respectful to a dead man but it worked because sure enough the Germans found him and they found the secret plans and they manned that beach and literally the allies walked in almost completely unopposed on a different beach if you fight the battle where the battle isn't you'll lose the war the only way to fight the battle is to fight the battle where the battle is, and that's the good fight of faith, not the bad fight of behavior. Because when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. It's not by might or by power, but by my Spirit. It's all the power of God. Sanctification is by faith alone. When we fight where the battle is, the Lord steps in and brings the victory. We do all we can to behave and God makes up the difference. No. We do all we can to relate and build trust and God makes all the difference. Let me say that once more. We don't do all we can to behave and God makes up the difference. We do all we can to build relationship and God makes all the difference. Lest you think I'm being soft on obedience, let me say obedience is huge, it's important, it's required, it's not optional, it's vital. You, we will not get there without the holiness. We must develop a Christ-like character for entrance into heaven. That's not the issue here. The issue is that God realizes obedience and transformation is so important, he doesn't leave that up to me. He says, you work on relationship and leave transformation up to me. I guarantee, if you let me start, I'll finish it. I have no idea how he's going to have me ready, but he says he will. And I'm going to sit at his feet and trust that. We all, with unveiled face, beholding it as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Word. That word transformation there, or transformed, is the word metamorphosis in the Greek. Okay? It's only used four places in the New Testament. Twice, Jesus was transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's the third use. Here's the fourth use. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Notice every use of the word transformed is passive. You don't transform yourself. 
you go and let somebody transform you. Difference between active and passive? Active, I ate the fish. Passive, I was eaten by the fish. There is a difference. And every use of the word transformed is passive. Let him transform you by what? He works on the mind. He transforms the heart. And it will transform the behavior so that then your life will be living proof of his good and acceptable and perfect will. If we let him transform us, the rest of the world will look on and say, man, there's something there I want. That's good. Satan says knowing God is bad. You're going to be bored. Heaven is going to be awful. You don't want to go there. You know, you give up anything for life for pie in the sky by and by. But if there are some real people whose lives prove the good, perfect, acceptable will of God because he's transformed them from the inside out, we are living proof that Satan's a liar. We not only experience life, we become natural witnesses. By the revelation of the attractive loveliness of Christ, by the knowledge of his love expressed to us while we were yet sinners, the stubborn heart is melted and subdued, and the sinner is transformed, that's passive, and becomes a child of heaven. God does not employ compulsory measures. Love is the agent which he uses to expel sin from the heart. Who does the expelling of sin? He does it. Sanctification is by faith alone. I love this quote. This covering the robe of his righteousness. And by the way, this is from a passage in Christ Object Lessons that is directly dealing with the subject of sanctification and holiness. Okay? Go home and read it. This covering, the robe of his own righteousness, woven in the loom of heaven, has in it not one thread of human devising. Now, here's the coup de grace. Look at this verse. Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who helps your sanctification. I am the Lord who, who does it? God does all the sanctifying. I just sit at his feet. Do you notice something here? The Sabbath is presented as the great sign that we've quit trying to fix our behavior and we're sitting at his feet in relationship and letting him do the transformation. Does that make sense? Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me that they may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Hell my Sabbath and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Here we have two reasons for the Sabbath. Number one, to acknowledge God is our creator, right? And that the Sabbath points back to creation. But after sin, the Sabbath takes on new meaning that we recognize that it's only the creator who can recreate us. It is the sign of of sanctification by faith alone. He does it. The Sabbath is the sign that we're worshiping the Creator God, and the Sabbath is the sign that we're letting the Creator God recreate us. The Sabbath is the symbol that God is the one who sanctifies us. The Sabbath is the symbol that God is the one who produces a Christ-like character in us, that God is the one who makes us like Christ, that God is the one who overcomes sin in us. Sabbath keepers are constantly being accused of trying to keep the law to save themselves. Have you heard that? Oh, you're a Sabbath keeper. You're trying to save yourself by keeping the law. Excuse me. How come keeping the other nine isn't 
trying to save yourself, but this one is. First of all, that makes no sense. Secondly, Satan has lied to the world into thinking that keeping the Sabbath is the sign of trying to fix yourself. Because you know what the liar does? The liar always blames on the other side exactly what he's doing. The Sabbath is the sign that we've given up on sanctifying ourselves and we're letting him do the sanctification. The Sabbath is about relationship, letting him sanctify us. Notice what Hebrews says, there remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That word Sabbath rest there is the word sabbatismos. There remains a Sabbathing for the people of God. And that means a resting. For he who has entered his rest, and now it's a different word, it means a complete pause, which is what the Sabbath is. You come to the Sabbath and you pause in God's presence for a whole day. He who has entered into his rest or pause has himself ceased, completely paused. Rest and ceased are the same words in the Greek. Okay? So he who has entered into his ceasing has himself ceased. He who has entered into his rest has himself rested. He who has entered into his pausing has himself paused from his works as God did from his. The Sabbath shows we've quit trying to sanctify ourselves and recognize that God is the one alone who sanctifies us. Man, I loved that when I finally saw that. Not that long ago. Our Sabbath understanding is the symbol God has given us. That sanctification is as by faith alone as is justification. Wow. And yet Satan is so subtle. He shows up and he says, don't you want to be like Christ? Don't you want to have a Christ-like character? Satan says that. We say, oh yeah, yeah, I want to have that. Well, now I've been observing some pride and some anger and some lustful thoughts. That's not like Christ. So don't you think you need to go to work on that pride and anger and lustful thoughts if you want to be more like Christ? And it makes sense for us to say, well, yes, I need to go to work on that. And what we end up doing is taking our focus off of Jesus and putting it on to sin management, which means we're sunk. We need to be confident that the one who began a good work, he's the one who will finish it. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the justification and the sanctification and the redemption. It's all by faith alone. Now, little children, what are we supposed to do? Abide in him, and when he appears, you may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. What does that tell you? If you abide, he'll have you ready to face him. Again, I don't know how he's going to do that, but I'm going to do the abiding and let him do the getting ready. Amen? He guarantees if we abide, we will not be ashamed when he shows up. And we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We are being changed by him. If you want to make a resolution, make the resolution to abide daily. Sit at the feet of Jesus daily. This one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what's behind. I reach forward to those things which are ahead. I pursue toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Backing up a couple of verses, he says, indeed, I count all things as loss for the excellency of what? The knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, including his pharisaical behaviorism, and count them as what? Rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him. And to know him is what? Eternal life. That's the resolution worth making, that I am going to seek to sit at the feet of Jesus, forget what's behind and all that sin and everything, and I'm going to press forward in my relationship with Jesus to know him. It's who you know that counts when it comes to salvation. Justification is by faith alone. It's also who you know that counts when it comes to transformation, overcoming. Sanctification is by faith alone. Obedience is by faith alone. Holiness is by faith alone. Transformation is by faith alone. Pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, transformation, sanctification, you will not get there. Behavioral modification is a matter of salvation. Without holiness, you'll never get there. By seeking holiness through sin management, you'll never get there. But by seeking Jesus in daily relationship, you'll get holiness and you'll get there, guaranteed. Last Sabbath afternoon, we closed with that elevator illustration. Let me give it to you just enough again. You get on the salvation elevator, Jesus says, what floor? You say all the way to the top. Good choice. Let's go. He pushes the top button. As you're heading up, all of a sudden the elevator shakes, you fall to the floor. He helps you up. He says, lean on me. If you'll lean on me, you won't fall down. After a few gazillion floors, we get our elevator legs. We step back. Look, Jesus, no hands. I got this down now. I'm finally getting control of things. All of a sudden, shake. You're on the ground. Does he kick you out? No. He says, lean on me. Now, let me ask you. While you were falling down, was the elevator still going up? Yes. And what does he guarantee? He guarantees I'll get you all the way to the top floor. He'll get us there. And he guarantees he'll have us ready to get off. He guarantees justification. He guarantees sanctification. If we'll just lean on him and stay with him, he promises the outcome. And you and I will not be able to figure out exactly how he's going to accomplish it. But he says he will. And that's why it's by faith alone. I stick with him. He says, I'll get you there. He is our justification. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. If you get Jesus, you get it all. Let's pray. Jesus, we tried to reason together tonight. And Lord, I hope if any one thing has come clear, it's that we all recognize that obedience is not optional. It's mandatory. But it's by faith alone. And that our obedience comes the same way our salvation comes. We sit at your feet day by day and let you save us and transform us and bring us into life and help us live life here in the parking lot such that others will see paradise in the parking lot and realize paradise is to be had. Lord, thank you that you give us the assurance of eternal life so we can pursue holiness without it being the pursuit of salvation because we already have it. Thank you for the promise that you will finish the work you start if we simply stick with you day by day. Lord, may we sit at your feet each morning 
and let you do your transforming work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.